Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and it's a warm welcome return for the demon letterer himself, possibly the gothest man in uh, British comics, certainly at Lawless this year, Jim Campbell. Welcome back to the book club. Hello, Eamon. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you. Thank you for doing it. Um, so tell me, I, I saw you at Lawless this year. How was Lawless for you? I thought it was great. I had an absolutely fantastic time. It was uh, it was it's really nice little small scale thing. The venue was good. The, the punters were absolutely marvellous to a man and a woman. But it's simultaneously either sort of astonished at the amount of commitment to some of the cosplayers, or just laughing out loud at like guys like the dinosaurs just wandering around, which is brilliant. So yes. um, yeah, I had I had a fantastic time from start to finish. To be honest with you, it was really good. And I know you said yourself that you know if people wanted to track you down because you didn't have a table, but you were you were the gothest looking man in the room at any one time. It would seem. Yes, and I, I, I treated my adoring fans to I think four outfit changes over the course of the weekend, and each one was sort of blacker and more ornate than the previous one. So, um, so I, I hope I didn't disappoint the people. And I, I apologise to you didn't catch me, but uh, I, I was I was bumped from my table by John and Dan bringing their guests. And when John Wagner tells you he's hijacked your table, you don't really argue. So. I was going to say, yes, when John Wagner says he needs the table, you probably say yes, don't you? It was a big sign on it where, where my name was saying Jim Campbell's table has been hijacked. So, uh, right. <laughs> and so I think I managed to catch up with most people who, who'd been looking for me. It's not a huge number. I don't have a legion of adoring fans, but I did, I did sign an awful lot of stuff on the Sunday. So I think I think that the, the message did come out to look for the hat, hat and the boots and just, just stick something in his hand. And if he says that's not me, then uh, you know, you've got the wrong person. So we did get a chance to sit down in the bar briefly at Lord's. Yeah, that was great. And we talked about doing another a return visit to the book club. So you chose a book. Tell us what you've picked for uh, the second outing. Um, I've picked House of Damon. I think it's Damon. It's an AE, so I'm going to go with that. From Originally from Eagle, 80, September 82 to February 83, I've got it in my notes. Yes. It's used 25 to 47, originally, um, written by Wagner and Grant um, with artwork by um, Jose Ortiz um, and reprinted by Hibernia a couple of times. And they did a, they did a soft cover sort of magazine style. And then they, they did another one with an actual spine on it, both of which are sadly out of print now. And I think that's what we're both looking at today. Yeah. I've got the 2020 reissue with the spine bound, uh, I guess what you'd say, perfect bound, glossy covers, yeah. Uh, Hibernia Press, as ever with Hibernia Press, you've got to get them while they're hot because they they sell out very quickly, don't they? They certainly do, and it's um, I mean I think it's, I think it's part of the, the license because they're not supposed to do massive runs, but um, yeah, but I mean and it's always a quality product as well. And I do I do have to say, particularly this one when I first saw it, I was absolutely blown away with uh, with what Hibernia and uh, Richard Pierce I think specifically had done to it. I think like, before we even get into it, I think it's worth just taking well certainly my hat off to uh to to, to the efforts that they've made because uh, i remember richard talking about what he was doing on uh, one, one of the social medias i can't remember where it was now but in some detail it's it's not i mean because these are scanned from the original comics not from nobody's got their hands on the artwork for it so these are just taken from the comics and although eagle was printed on better paper than 2018 marginally it's still no mean feat scanning from printed pages especially grayscale like this because you've got the uh, you've got the the, the half-tone screen the dot pattern uh, which grains up when you scan it he's managed to eliminate all that i believe he did quite a lot of retouching as well um right. to sort of patch it up where it couldn't be where it couldn't be you know just done clean off the scan and it looks absolutely gorgeous it's, it's a fantastic looking book i think it's why when, when we had that conversation it was the first thing that, that, that sprung to mind um because you sort of said he said like you know oh 
House of Dame or maybe Tower King, and I have a much stronger impression. In, I mean, I'm liking Tower King. I've got the reprint of that as well. But I have a much stronger impression of Orti's art from this book than from Tower King, which is why it was, that was that was my, my first choice. Right. So you mentioned Richard Pierce has done, as you say, design and reprographics, uh, scans from comics, not from original art. It's astonishing how well it looks in you know this small press collection from Hibernia. I should also mention that there are thanks to one Jim Campbell for identifying yes. the letterers uh, <laughs> from House of Damon. So that's Jack Potter, Steve Potter, Paul Bensberg, and Peter Knight. Um, yes. You more or less the usual suspects. So, uh, and yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, Richard just just asked me if I could help. They like they like to credit them, and they're not credited in the book itself. So in the in the original strip episode, so sort of like, can you give me a hand? And I'll confess a, a little bit of it's so it's sometimes guesswork because um, I've always wondered whether Tom Frame, John Oldrich, and Pete Knight were either all trained by one person or whether one of them trained the others because they are very very similar. Right. And you have to sort of take, 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 take. They they all have a very similar sort of tall, thin style for for, for for rendering their letters. And you really just have to sort of sort of look at other cues, like the way they do sort of exclamations or sound effects or particularly balloon shapes. I mean, Tom's very much instantly recognisable, but if he's doing a, a rush fill-in, um, sometimes it can be quite difficult to to, to pick between Aldridge, Knight, and and Frame. Okay, well, I'll, I'll ask you a little bit at the end about identifying letterers from their their hands again. Um, we'll also mention that there's an introduction in this volume from Mike Perkins, a sort of well-known Avengers and X-Men artist, uh, talking about uh, the Ortiz art. For anybody who hasn't read this one, uh, is not a fan of the New Eagle comics, what was House of Damon about? Can you sum up the plot for us, Jim? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. it's I suppose it's, it's very obvious sort of precedent is um amityville it's 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 very much a, a, a it starts out very much as a ha- just a, your haunted house story something you know newlywed couple arrive at, the, at their, their nice new house um elliot the husband is an architect and he's had it built um and well to be honest with you there, there's very little in the way of, of, of tension given that the for the very first time you see the house there's a massive demon face looming in the sky over it so you, <laughs> it's not a surprise it's not a surprise that things aren't going to go entirely well but it's 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 got that sort of you know there's something evil in the walls of this house vibe from uh, you saw before, and it, it sort of comes from the like Amityville horror and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, and that's basically it. They, they 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 take up residency in this new house that Elliot's had built for his his uh, his new bride Cassandra, um, and they, they're not even through the door when the the, the signs fall. <laughs> the signs literally Villa Cassandra's fallen off, revealing a sign saying House of Damon. And this is you've not even got to the end of the first spread yet, and we've got ominous rumblings, which then sort of amplify as we go on and things get worse and worse and um so we'll, we'll go through the individual things i think sort of rather than spoil the whole plot now as we sort of work our way through it but the, yeah the bottom line is uh, um, a hand, through the course of a handful of extra cannon fodder turn up because two people aren't really enough to keep the tension up in a sort of a horror type strip and things just get weirder and more and more strange and they discover that doors lead to rooms that shouldn't be there in some cases entire worlds that are in, living inside this house until we find a sort of sort of progress our way through various horrors and several different genres as well that Ortiz seems quite happy just to, to whack out with his usual aplomb um, before we get finally get to, a, to sort of the truth of the matter and then to a conclusion. Great stuff. Um, so it rips along. We're going to concentrate on the Jose Ortiz artwork in a moment. But before we do that, 
we'll pause as ever to sort of like nod and admire John Wagner and Alan Grant's writing. And I, I was trying to work out that at this point in 1982, how many strips they were doing every week. I'd certainly, All of them, wasn't it? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're certainly doing Dread, Strontium Dog, Ace Trucking. They're doing Doom Lord in the New Eagle, yeah. House of Demon. I think John was doing the return of the Mekong um, strip for New Eagle as well. Yeah. And, I mean, probably more strips as well with their various pseudonyms. Well, I mean, and, but wasn't Battle was still running at this point as well, wasn't it? So, yes, so they're probably... So I'm, so I'm, sure they've, I'm sure they've had the fingers in that pie as well, so... And here they are, what they're doing, three and a half pages a week of House of Damon. Yeah. Um, which, as you say, sort of rips along through the haunted house scenario with various then different horror um, stories as we go on. I mean, like yourself, I got a very Amityville feel from the opening chapters of, you know, the fact you the family moving into a new house and things starting to go wrong. So that's great stuff. I, I noted... A sort of similarity in our notes between uh, what would come later, which uh, was in Scream, and then I think joined New Eagle, the 13th floor. Yeah. And this idea that comics in the early 80s were perhaps starting to explore the idea of virtual spaces um, as a good place to put adventures and uh, horrors um, there's the Computer Warrior strip, which comes along later in New Eagle as well. But I wondered if John and Alan, this might be their first venture into that into that sort of setting. Yeah, I can't I can't think of anything they've, they've done prior to this. And I, I, I almost certainly will we'll come back to this later. It's interesting to me. I, I kind of wonder, you must have noticed, it, we, we, sort of, we sort of move away from the overt horror theme as we as we go through this. And I, I sort of wonder if there was a little bit, given, as I say, Scream and Scream hadn't started yet, had it? But Battle was still running. Yes. And I noticed, like, there's, there's, there's a. I kind of wonder if there was a bit of an editorial kind of stay in your lane thing because the, the there's a there's a sort of a war sequence that comes later on, but is quite obviously from the way it's drawn Vietnam. Yeah. But has this sort of slightly odd science fiction overlay for no readily apparent reason other than I kind I kind of felt like you can't do a war strip, you're not Battle. Right. This is New Eagle, I, I, yeah, yeah. Make it a vaguely say, future war, yes, yeah. In, in, the, in the same way that, that they took, they kind of row back from the horror. And although Scream was like, I think it's just a twinkle in somebody's eye at this point. I think it might there might have been a bit like you know, this is New Eagle. It's not a horror comic either. So they sort of it, it was well, we, we, when we when we get to those elements being introduced, I'm sure. But I did overall, I did kind of wonder if it was sort of it was sort of trammeled into whatever the editor's idea of Eagle had to be. And so you, know, you can't have a proper war story in here because. Battle does those, and but we're okay, we're okay with a bit of science fiction, slight pseudo science fiction adventure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They are sort of, and they're sort of slightly science fictiony future war, although it's very clearly based on the Vietnam uh, type experience, isn't it? Okay, yeah. um, we wanted to talk about Jose Ortiz particularly. 1932 to 2013, Spanish agency artist, famously Warren Comics in the 1970s. We've talked about him on this podcast doing the 13th floor. We know he did some uh, Rogue Trooper. He also did the other book you've mentioned already, The Tower King. What did you make? I mean, what do you think about his art? And particularly tell us about the sort of grayscale and the sort of washes he's putting on these pages. The, the, the grayscale washes are absolutely lovely. I mean, I, I, I've actually written a great big note about this opening double page spread. 
because it's it's fantastic. Um, when you consider that, that apart from the, the looming demon face, that opening double page spread, uh, it's fantastic. You've got, I mean, it's given that not a lot happened. You've got that fantastic little bit of landscape and the demon head looming over the house and an interesting angle on the house over on the left-hand side that hits you first. And then you've got a lot of panels with just you know people, an apartment with a sign falling off a wall. There's an awful lot. But if you look, he changes the lighting, he changes the camera angles, it zooms in, it zooms out. And then right at the end, as they as he carries his new bride across the threshold, he tilts the whole panel. Yes. It's 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 off square, unlike everything else on the page, which is immediately sort of sort of sort of hello, don't get too comfortable, things aren't right. It's it's absolutely masterful, you know, and I think you know, he, I think he did have a, a stint in, uh, in sort of off and on doing girls' comics as well, which I think might explain why the pages that follow, all the interiors and, and the, the, the furniture and the fashion, is all absolutely gorgeously rendered. And the grey tones give him, I think, extra scope to move between light and dark. So you know, if it's not just either it's all black or it's all white. He can do a light scene, but then he can layer in the grey and make, actually make a scene darker as it goes on if we're progressing towards something horrible. So you get a kind of foreboding built into the art just from the fact that he, he, he's able to darken it up in stages as we go through a scene. Yeah, I mean, if we turn the page to the, sort of like the next two pages, he does that absolutely in terms of lighting. It's all the interiors, as you've described, Jim, they're very bright and detailed. Cassandra's hair and dress is sort of very, as you say, girls' comic-y in a way. And then yeah. as it goes on, it just gets progressively darker, leading up to a bit of a reveal on the second page, um, one of the first sort of in-house um, haunting events. Uh, masterfully done. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't uh, like to just stick to a sort of nice straight, square or rectangular panel layout. He's got tilted panels, circular panels... Um, all sorts of angles, increasing our sense of unease, really. Yeah, and he's and he's you know, and and, and Wagner and Grant haven't given him an awful lot of room to play with. I mean, there's this. I was watching them. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's eight panels on page three. Nine on page four, and it's like that all the way through. He gets a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a bit of relief on the, the first page of most episodes. They'll let him have a half page to to do something dramatic with, but then they really. Well, because they're burning through so much plot, they're not hanging about. They really bang the panels in, and he manages to find something interesting to do with all of them. You know, I'm thinking we look at that last, the the the, uh, the final page of episode one. I mean, the 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 close up on Cassandra is fantastic. That's absolute classic horror comic stuff. And then we get the you know the face to face with with Damon himself, which is again is an absolutely great sort of straight out of an EC horror comic. Yes, you know, and 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 he's just. He just he just seems to be absolutely at home with this stuff, and and it's just it's it's gorgeous all the way through. And even the tiny, you know, even when he's doing these tiny little panels, you don't get the impression that he's sort of now. Ah, well, there's not much to that. I'll just just bang that in. I mean, you know, there's what it's about a, an eighth of a page that that vertical on the uh, the bottom left of page four. Where you've got that lovely little long shot of the house on um, the, the cliff. The cliff yes. Yeah, the cliff running down to the seas. And I mean, you know, he's not got a lot of room to play with there. And that's gorgeous. I mean, it's it's he, he is absolutely he's absolutely the, the the star of this particular show. It's it's because he's just he's consistently excellent all the way through. And as we see as we, we, we move along through the story in a right old clip, every time John and Alan decide, oh no, but we 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 we're through doing Haunted House now. Let's let's do something else and then throw them into a room that's completely different and part of the house that's got a completely different genre. He just sort of shrugs shifts over to the new genre, does it equally well, 
and, and then copes with a problem when they move on to something else two episodes later. It's fantastic. And I, you know, he's based in Spain, I think, at this stage. And this artwork in 1982 is flying backwards and forwards yes. um, by post. And I'm always astonished when, you know, they're given, let's say he's given three and a half pages a week in the New Eagle. Um, you could say that they are still relatively cheap, disposable, throwaway comics. But he never, ever phones it in it seems to me he's always producing individual panels and page compositions that are just staggering to look at the amount of work he puts in well yeah and you bear in mind that i mean that was that was 23 episodes unbroken i know so it's like so three and a half like occasionally four episodes four pages an episode but even so that's a lot of work to be hacking out week after week especially with all these gray washes i mean he's, he's i mean they're beautifully inked it's not like like he's he's, he's stepped back from one part of the process put extra time into the other. He's, he's added a whole extra layer into the process by putting these grey washes on top of them. But you can see the line works gorgeous. And then you see you've got these, these lovely tones he's added in on top. It's, it's fantastic work. And um, I, I always feel, no, since I, I, I always feel, feel sorry that he, he never got a, a, a real sort of breakout 2000 AD hit because I, you know, I, I could see with the right strip. Unfortunately, Rogue Trip had run out of steam by the time they put him on it. Mm. So he sort of only you know, got a future shock and then that, that, that chunk of Rogue. He never really sort of like like gets the love from the mainstream of British comics. I think he deserves because he's a fantastic artist. Yeah, you mentioned obviously that he's got a history both in girls comics and horror comics. And John and Alan ask him to produce some great horror sequences and sort of horror ideas. I mean, we've got sort of bat-like demons very early on, but as you go on, as you say, it sort of changes, and they just throw in different. Uh, genres and different um, sort of beasties and creepies at him. What did you make of the sort of like the horror work that he handles throughout this? Well, I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, I've just obviously we've got the end of uh, episode one, yeah, just flicks over to the start of episode two. And although he doesn't get his, his, his half page for that, um, you know, there's a shot of Damon like reaching out of the mirror to grab Cassandra that's just astonishing. I mean, it's, it's incredibly sort of darkly rendered, but completely clear. And again, I, I have absolutely no idea how Richard Havernia managed to extract that from a from a printed page because you know when you put that on the scanner, whether it's been printed, I know that like all those little dots they use to render the screen tones, the print, the half tones, the printed, the grey tones, they just fill in, and it's absolutely horrendous, and it's, it takes an enormous amount of skill to extract something usable from an image like that on the printed page. And yeah, it's but it, it's it's a fantastic. Even though it's only a quarter of the page, it's a fantastic image. And it's very nice, like you say, we've got we've got a, a circular panel with Ellie. It very nicely plays off against her oblivious husband on the phone, telling off his builder yes. for the fact that his haunted haunted house has got wallpaper peeling. So, um. yeah, fantastic stuff. And I should also mention, he, you know, we talk about uh, Elliot's face in that uh, circular panel. His faces throughout the whole book. What I would sort of characterise as a very European-looking artwork, which I suppose is appropriate, yes. the sort of stuff that David Roach talks about and collects and often um you know puts in his books but he does these wonderful detailed faces and close-ups throughout doesn't he as well yeah and this and this 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 there's quite a large cast as uh as, as um as don and alan keep suddenly realizing i think i think at various points during the story i think they i don't know how in how much detail they planned it in advance but i think they thought well I think they keep bringing, we might, we might be running short of cannon fodder. And so I think some, somebody else, some other pathless soul wanders into the into the orbit of the house and gets sucked into this world. And so there's, there's, what, there's probably about eight or nine 
um, human members of the cast of varying levels of importance through the through the course of this, and they're all immediately identifiable, and you you, know, you can tell who all of them are. It's never confusing. They, they all look different uh, without being sort of wildly caricatured. You know, it's 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 a good time. They say, and they're all normal human beings, apart from the, the policemen who have uniforms who turn up later on. They're all just folks in normal street clothes. You don't have uniforms or costumes to distinguish them. Yeah, you know, and, and again, and again, they're, they're they're all inhabiting these really quite complex and cramped layouts because say, John and Alan. I mean, we flipped, I've just flipped on from that first horror page on episode two, and we're immediately hit with a nine-panel page. You know, there's there's, there's there's not room to sort of really show these off, but he's very clever about working out which panels don't need a huge amount of space so he can get the, the drama into the, into the panels that need it. Absolutely astonishing work. Now, you've mentioned, obviously, we start with, like, a typical haunted house in a way, Damon is sort of reaching out of the mirror. Later on, we get the strange military sort of future war that they get uh, caught up in. Were there any other particular sort of encounters or turns in the horror story that you wanted to mention for us, Jim? Well, I mean, we, we're leaning very heavily on autis here, but uh, yeah, I mean, we get to. So, are we up to? When they, when they, they go up to the attic, um, yeah, which is episode three, which is it's pretty much, you know. The, the walls are cold and there's blood running from the taps and so they head up to the attic uh, unsurprisingly um, and as Ellie opens the door at the end of episode two there's all these sort of winged bat demon things um, and episode three again he doesn't get his half page and it's later on that they start to come it's only about a quarter page but the, 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 the that opening page of episode three when he's attacked by all these little bat winged imp things it's just fantastic and the, the, the focus panel the bottom left quarter page it's just great. I mean, and it's very dark. And again, you know, kudos to Richard and Ivernia for the repro job on this. But it's immediately clear, and the, the sort of the, the lack of explicit detail, I think, probably makes it more horrific. Of just sort of Elliot on his knees, sort of flailing against all these uh, these horrible little bat winged things, whilst his poor hapless wife is <laughs> screaming in the doorway, as hapless wives in horror stories from the nineteen eighties tended to do. But it's, it's it's really powerful. It's a superb piece of figure work, yeah, and storytelling. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and as you say, it is a dark panel. You know, he's fallen into the darkness when he's surrounded by these uh, bat demon beasties. But yeah, they've still managed to get the the detail in the reproduction, which is astonishing, considering they must have been dealing, as you say, with the uh, the grain, but also bleed through and all those sort of things to deal with. Um, okay. What about the rest of the book? What else would you note from it in terms of the story and the uh, the twists? Well, like I, said, I, I sort of well, the first thing I said that sort of major note that I made was was the the, the immediate drafting in, uh, in about the next couple of episodes of a, of a lot of the sort of three more characters just simply because, as I say, I think Wagner got thought you you can't really um, sustain this with only two people because if you only have two people, the, the, the reader knows that we can't kill any of them off. So. Uh, handily enough, Elliot has just done some kind of architecture design job for a doctor of parapsychology who he gets on the phone to, yep. and Julie turns up. <laughs> Julie, Julie turns up with two assistants uh, an episode or so later. So, um, and they get embroiled in it, and of course, a paranormal investigator turning up at the haunted house. Yes, <laughs> it's very, very handy for, for for being able to to sort of to ex- exposit um, as the plot requires. 
Um, oh, of course, before I keep forgetting, of course, uh, by, the, by this stage, um, the builder, Mr. Fenwick, has also turned up, having been torn off a strip by our hero for, for his inadequate wallpapering skills, which was a bit harsh as it was the demonic influence that was causing the wallpaper to fall off. But yeah. uh, <laughs> Poor old Mr. Fenwick, the builder. Uh, it's not going to end well for him. Um, yeah, uh, as you say, when, you, when your house is sort of possessed by a literal demon, um, yeah not going to go well and then on from there we've got uh, there's a you know again they're in this sort of haunted space this virtual world they can't escape the house there's a um, yeah because yeah, cassandra literally fades away having been injured in this attack with the with the imps and so damon appears she just disappears from the bed they put her into and damon appears and tells them that they can't escape and sure enough they can't having tried to undo the doors and break all the windows and then just literally then sucked through into the into the same dimension that uh, Cassandra has disappeared to. It's just they go from being in the house to standing on some kind of rocky outcrop in who knows where, and you kind of that's a real sort of sort of we're not in Kansas anymore moment. Yes, and which I also I have to say at this point I'd say I, I suddenly popped into my head something I'd absolutely forgotten. As we talk about we talked about um, Amityville as sort of an obvious precedent for this. But there's a, an, an antecedent, 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 which I'd completely forgotten about because I'd only ever watched it on a, a, a rental video sometime in, in the mid-80s, which is the night I had to look it up, the 1986 film House. Oh, right. With William Cat, which actually ticks some of the same boxes, interestingly enough, and it's definitely after this in as much that there are otherworldly interior spaces in a haunted house and he actually he actually um but it, there's malign influence there in, in that film it's actually uh, a, uh, a a comrade from the vietnam war who he left well didn't really leave to die but who, this comrade feels that he left him to die and via some malevolent spirit this is brought to focus on this poor chap in his house but there is a, a sequence where he goes through a door and ends up in a jungle war which in this case happens to be vietnam but he's almost uh, you know it's very similar in tone and feel to the the war sequences that happened later on in this, which I thought was was, was clearly a coincidence because I don't believe Hollywood screenwriters were mining 1980s boys comics for movie ideas, but it was just curious to me that you had one clear movie that precedes it in tone, but then I just suddenly remembered there was this one after it, which is which takes an awful lot of the same plot points, which I thought was just curious. Oh, okay. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that Hollywood has sort of like drawn influence from British comics, I suppose. That's true. <laughs> yes, it yeah. does happen. So, yeah, but say once once they get transported, we do seem to stick with the sort of the, the horrory tone. It's just an otherworldly horror, but they're sort of yet more bizarre gargoyle-like creatures taunting them and uh, leading them astray. And it's interesting actually because you sort of they, you lose a lot of the darkness because it's kind of sort of a deserty sort of feel when they first pull through into the under into the into the other world. Yeah. Um, the, the the beasties themselves are rendered quite gloomily, which is it's quite a nice contrast to the general sort of deserty kind of feel of it. Which I always thought was something that Ortiz excelled at. I, I, I felt that a lot of his um, a lot of his rogue trooper work. I can't think of another artist who I immediately recognised the way that they light figures. Right, he sort of real. There's a real sense. I, I always thought somebody should have given him a spaghetti western to do, because that's how the lighting he uh, lights his okay. figures feels yeah. to me. There's a very strong, very hard overhead light, and then there's a sense of light bouncing back off a hot or dusty landscape. And so he's absolutely in his element. This sort of deserty bit, and then he sort of, he drops these these creepy little gnome guys in there who are rendered much more darkly and are just there to lead them astray. 
or more accurately into peril, which I think brings on to a, a, a page that people tend to single out uh, quite uh, quite strongly. I've got a couple of people when this has come up on sort of the 2000 AD forum and stuff. Um, which episode it is? It's I think it's is it episode seven. Yes, episode seven, which is page 28, if you want to find it, where these little known things have led Elliot and uh, Dave, one of the parapsychologist's assistants, into, into what looks like quicksand. And there's this terrific page with them being dragged under the surface, all these little known things popping up out of the sand, dragging these guys under the, under, into, into the ground, whilst up in the top left-hand corner, there's this lovely little inset panel with just these known things' faces all just leering down at them, going, hello there, hello there, hello there. And up behind them on the right, we've got some wonderful horror trees as well. Oh, God, yeah. And, he's, yeah, and, and, and those, are, those are fantastic because they're lovely. You sort of, you can, there's the, a the fluidity to the, to the line work which sketches those in and then adds those. And it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's the real sort of looming horror. You know, and again, he's, oh, yeah, he's got half a page with an inset and he really makes it, makes it pay off. And uh, especially because you notice the most, most of these big pages he gets are actually just a recap panel of the final, of the final panel of the episode before. Yeah, tremendous. Um, we've obviously, we've talked about his grey washes at, at, at times uh, because the way he makes the characters sort of pop out of these landscapes is just remarkable, isn't it? The way he sort of like defines them. Uh, he does the work on the backgrounds and then he makes the figures just pop straight out of the panel at us. Yeah, there's a there's a terrific sense of three D space in this of, of planes where you you can get a sense of depth even in these small panels like the uh, the one like the page that we're looking at now that uh, that that first page of uh, page of episode seven there's the the last but one panel where Cassandra's running up to try and help them and she's sort of pushed right into the foreground but washed dark yeah and the backgrounds are much lighter and all you can see is Elliot's hands emerging from from the from the, from the sand as he's pulled under by the horrible gnome things. And it's you know it's a it's a panel you'd pass right over because it, it you know it, it's it's a storytelling panel. It's not a great big sort of in-your-face drama panel, but it tells you a lot in a very small amount of space with a lovely sort of sense of foreground background, and you know and you know and we've got proper backgrounds. Not a lot of room for it, but he doesn't yeah just say he, he he doesn't skimp and he, he he banged out as far as we can tell an episode a week of this for nearly six months. And it's it's quite a feat, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely astonishing. Um, we should say that it's a sort of contained story because it has an endpoint uh, yes. of sorts. I mean, you know, within this slim volume from Hibernia, we have the whole run of the story, which is nice, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I sort of I came I came to that sort of I think and that was in my sort of, sort of age where this was. I came to sort of favour the idea of, of stories ending. Um, you know, some of my, my favourite stuff in 2000 AD from sort of, you know, the sort of early to mid 80s turned out to be stuff that was self-contained. You know, Fiends of the Eastern Front and Harry Twenty, both of which I thought were much stronger stories for having an end at a point when, you know, you, you kind of got to a bit of a stage with Road Trooper where it was kind of like, really? Yeah. You know, you've, you've, got, you've got the Traitor General now. Could we not just stop? Was that not supposed to be the end? Because... Yeah, it very clearly was the end, given how how sort of lackluster most of the stuff that came after it was. And so, yes, I, I very much came to appreciate stories that, that actually hadn't any, as much as I liked to see them. Also, I do have to say the, the the sort of if I was to single out a major weakness with this, and why I think I think why why I think Wagner and Brett might have been happy just to wrap it up, is that there's not really a strong defining heroic character in it. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, Elliot's Elliot's there to do the action stuff. 
and the and Dr. Cormac's there to do the exposition stuff, and Cassandra's there to do the slightly psychic-y bits. But there's there's no standout character there. So I don't think John and Alan would have got to the end of the story and thought, it's worth leaving this open because we can revisit these characters. Especially since I I I have this I I, I think I mentioned to you when when I, when I saw you in Bristol was it's it's interesting to me that Cassandra is called Cassandra because although we'd already met Anderson in 2000 AD by that point I don't think we found out that her first name was Cassandra until she got her own series sometime after a couple uh, of years after that right okay so, so, so I, do, I do kind of find this this sort of you know blonde slightly psychic called Cassandra lady called Cassandra so I kind of think there is a, a sort of a bit of a, a sort of a bleed through into into Anderson there I thought yes. Oh, that is interesting, yes, particularly as I've just not long recorded my episode about uh, the uh, Judge Dredd versus Death collection, which, of course, features her first appearance. Oh, OK, that's interesting. The end of the book, we have a conclusion, and you'd noted um, that possibly this may have been re-lettered, an editorial suggestion, it seems. Well, I mean, this was a sort of... A, 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 we were just a, a bit of speculation by... Um... Uh, by by Richard and I, to be honest with you, because the sort of the opening caption and perhaps the very few early speech balloons right in you get to the last episode look to me like they might be Steve Potter, but by the time you get to the last couple of pages, it's definitely not, and I can't with any confidence put a name to the letter of. Right. But there's an awful lot. I mean, there is an awful lot of exposition and dialogue crammed into the last page and a half yes and it's 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 it appears to be to me to be lettered by somebody else and it you know it doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility that uh, those pages were perhaps held back or some somebody in editorial decided to to, to sort of punch up the exposition i mean uh, stupidly if after we'd had that conversation in bristol i should have asked john about it but um, it just never crossed my mind but um so I apologise for that. I could have maybe got the inside scoop. Although equally possibly, John could have just said I was writing that many stories at the time. I have absolutely no recollection of this, which is not 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 uncommon and completely reasonable answer from him. To <laughs> yes. be honest, but he does say that from time to time, doesn't he? Yes, he was writing so many. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I wonder if you know editorial wanted to give a particular spin to the last uh, episode and last couple of pages to wrap it up in a certain way. Okay, that's a little puzzle for us. Um, just turning back to Jose Ortiz's art for a moment, he reminded me of, in places I can see some sort of Bernie Wrightson horror, particularly that panel yeah. you mentioned of the uh, Elliot falling through the door into the Bat Demons, but also his faces. Um, I've been looking at the Al- Argentinian artist uh, Alberto Breccia uh, ah. and seeing not- some of those. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not as familiar with Breccia as, as, as I should be. I mean, ever since um, uh, Matt Brooker first uh, said he was attempting a homage with, with Stickleback, I've sort of I've tracked down little bits and seen little bits of pieces on online and stuff. And, and he is a phenomenal artist, and you know, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. But also, I, I have to say, you know, I think a lot of when, when he goes when we go and do the, the not Vietnam War sequence. Which runs for several episodes. I mean, his his battle weary soldiers. I don't. I don't think you would have been at all surprised to see Joe Kubert drawing most of those. Right. Yes. You know, there's, there's a kind of kind of sort of rangy, tired sort of aspect to them mm. that would like be straight out of a Sergeant Rock comic. It's um, you know, he's he sort of, and yet never without sort of looking like an obvious homage. But but you sort of 
you can sort of finish those thinking to yourself, well, okay, you know, um, oh, we're, we're in a war comic now. We kind of need to be coming at it from this angle. We're in a horror comic now. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get it. We'll, we'll sort, of, sort of channel a bit of a Wrightson vibe without being, you know, explicitly copying Wrightson. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a, a masterful sort of just way you say, he'll just shift gear without any sort of, um, any sort of, sort of obvious kind of misstep. Sometimes you'll see it, you know, an artist be given something to draw that, that's wildly out of, of, of step with the strips so far. Uh, I mean, you, you, just, I mean, you see it a lot in the early 2000 AD, so perhaps the first sort of two or three years. A lot of the, particularly the British artists who weren't necessarily, hadn't necessarily been doing European comics and girls' comics, would tend to throw a, a, like a bit of a misstep if they were suddenly asked to draw a female character. A lot of the ladies are quite clunky in the early 2080s because they've been drawn for weeks and weeks and weeks. They've just been drawing snarling men shooting each other and blowing things up. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, the, first, the first couple of times Mick McMahon was asked to draw a lady, it wasn't terribly successful. Uh, I seem to recall they, they'd pop up and they'd be fairly perfunctory. And it, it wasn't until I think sort of, we got into a uh, there's a very nice spread in ABC Warriors that he, he sort of really seems, seems to finally click with him. But you know, but Ortiz, because I think he's done so many different things. I mean, some of the some of the war the war the panels in the war sequence, apart from say the, the sort of slightly odd tone with the sort of science fiction overlay on what clearly um, a contemporary war story. this page sixty, which I can't just do notes here. I'll say which uh, it might be episode. There's a gunboat, and they're, they're all stranded in the river, and it's on, it's on page sixty in, the, in my edition. Yeah, they, they've been caught flat-footed, and it's it's over over the shoulder of one of the uh, the enemy troops in this gunboat, basically machine gunning these guys in the water. And it's it's a terrific panel, and it's a terrific page actually, because although you have to then pack all this other action, these four little panels down the bottom, it's very dynamic, it's very well paced, and it's very exciting. But it, but again, you know, it's the, the, the science fiction element sits rather oddly on top of it when it's it would perfectly at home and in battle which i suspect is why the science fiction element was put there right okay yeah i'm I'm looking at that page now and the one following it uh and again he's doing tremendous work uh in a sort of different slightly different genre um okay and if you skip just say quickly if you skip onto the very first page of the next episode 64 you've got that fantastic shot of them all sort of hiding in the jungle watching the enemy troops and again it's just absolutely superb yes yeah, it's and wonderful it's just, you know, stuff, isn't it? With the best world in the world, I do think this is probably not uh, Wagner and Grant's finest work. I mean, it's got that frenetic energy, but it's kind of, you know, it, it kind of feels a little bit sort of queasy. It, it becomes less interesting to me when they introduce the science fiction explanation for what the evil presence is. Right. Yeah, you because know, it took it. Uh, so we want to sort of, sort of talk about the the denouement. They learn sort of about three quarters of the way through that, in fact, Damon is an evil influence in the future. Who lives in the 26th century and is psychically projecting his malign influence back into the, the present day. And again, I, I don't see any reason other than perhaps editorial saying this isn't a horror comic for him not to have been just a supernatural malign force inhabiting the walls or the ground of the building. But we, we suddenly get this this sort of these 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 guys sort of project these good wizards project themselves back to the 26th century to explain the plot and Handily explain a potential route by which they might actually escape the house and defeat Damon himself, and it just seemed sort of seemed to, to be slightly less interesting at that point. Yes, I mean you can perhaps sense John and Alan going, you know, growing tired of this one, 
And, um, you know, here we are, another first early example of the explanation wizards did it. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it's curious. There are, some, I mean, there are some, sort of, some interesting little sort of precursors of, of, or repetitions of, of Wagner grad tropes. I mean, I, mentioned, I remember mentioning to you when we did uh, Journey into Hell, I thought we'd had the, the first instance of um, the Wagner grad hands coming out of the walls that we'd then see later on in Anderson. Yeah. And we have one here as well. Um, I can't remember which page it is now, but it's, uh, it's relatively early on. They, they're going up some stairs and there's hands coming out of the walls and, and doing pretty much the exact same thing. And then there's a rather bizarre sequence sort of after they're dragged under the under the sand by the known creatures in that rather nightmarish splash so, where they get eaten by a giant worm and out of nowhere, sort of a, a TV sports commentator appears and narrates a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and, they, and you know, and, and John and Alan do like a TV narrator as well. They do um, like a sports commentator, yeah, don't they? They do like one. So uh, it's a very odd place for one to pop up. But you, go, uh, you, but, you know, with hindsight, you see it there. Go, oh, yes, John and Alan are sport, a sports commentator. There you go. Yeah, they do like that. I mean, as you say, I, I, I don't think it's John and Alan's finest work, but it is a showcase for. The remarkable artwork of Jose Ortiz, and, I and, know, and it's never dull. I mean, no. it's, <laughs> and it's a slim volume. You know, you, it's it's got a, it, it's a contained thing. We can read the whole thing fairly quickly, and then just marvel at the artwork. And I know that the guys from the Where Eagles Dare podcast, who cover New Eagle, will be particularly pleased at us picking out Jose Ortiz to talk about because um, he is just such a master. You also mentioned, because at the same time, Hibernia put out the Tower King. Yes. And I've got it in exactly the same format. I must have bought the the two at the same time. Now, we're going to leave that open for somebody possibly to pick for the podcast. But again, uh, I think that one's Alan Hebden this time writing. Yeah, well, Alan Hebden, yeah. And again, it's another sort of masterclass in his artwork. Although I think you prefer the House of Damon slightly to it. Well, the thing is, I'm 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 curious now because I haven't um, I haven't read Tower King for a number of years either. Um, when when you sort of spoke about this, I immediately said, "Oh, you know, House of Damon," because I remembered the visuals so strongly. I mean, it's just been that opening. If, you, if you've just seen that opening splash page. It's kind of, you know, at the age of 12 or 13, it is kind of imprinted onto your brain, especially because at the point where it looked like it was a horror story, it was quite different to anything else they were doing in Eagle at the time, you know, and it was just this fantastic, oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, I'm curious, I'm going to go back and and reread Tower King now because I've not read it for several years and I know I can lay my hands on the reprint because I found it when I was trying to find this one. And I'm, I'm just curious whether, I'm interested, given that, now that I've reread this, the artwork holds up, but I'm less enthused about the story than I was in my head. You right. see what I mean? I'm wondering now if I'm being unfair on Tower King. Okay. So I'm going to go 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 back and have a look at that because, um, like I say, I mean, you know, I know it's going to look amazing, and I'm, I'm now kind of wondering whether if, if they, my my brain is sort of un, comparing it unfavorably to how I remembered this as opposed to how it actually is. So I'm I'm going to try and get, take a more sort of a, a step back and a more try a more objective view of Tower King. So we might be able to have a chat about that once I've done that. But uh, okay, at the risk of at the risk of just becoming the uh, the the Jose Ortiz fan club. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Huge fans <laughs> of Jose Ortiz. Okay, what about with Jose Ortiz going back to House of Damon? And let's pick a Grail page or two. What are you going to choose to hang on the uh, the wall in the virtual well, gallery? It's, it's it's bizarre because so much of it is gorgeous. I mean, I'm just I'm just flicking back randomly now, just because I mean I know what I'm going to pick. But I mean, it's like 
page 68. It's, it's just an opening. I don't, his half page, um, bless you, doesn't even get action. It's just the house, you know, against a slightly stormy sky with some seagulls. And it's just a masterful use of, of light and dark. You know, it's sort of, you, you, you can tell instantly the direction of the sunlight and it's got a solidity to it. You know, you could put that in a frame and stick it on the wall of your of your, of your, your house any day of the week. It's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I am going to have to plump that opening splash because it's just you get that wonderful, huge sort of powering demon head in the in the top left, and then this marvelous chunk of storytelling as well. And I could pick most of those half pages. But both those uh, those stories would be in the war sequence with those half pages we just mentioned, the, the lurking in the jungle. And yes. the, uh, the 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 gunboat sequence are again just fantastic pieces of, of, of drawing. Um, it's 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 one of those you know all you know you say you say about you know about, about, about Elliot getting attacked by the Batwing demon things. I mean you could just go round and round on that. But I'm going to stick with that opening sp- uh, double page spread just because it, I, not only is it a phenomenal piece of drawing, it's got this great storytelling to it as well. Yeah. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, we'll give you those two pages. Uh, quite easily. Jose Ortiz, John and Alan writing the introduction to House of Damon. You've got the logo across the bottom as well. You've got, as you've already described earlier in the podcast, you've got the wonderful things he does with the panel layouts, cramming quite a lot in, in a way. Uh, certainly a lot of panels, which is fantastic. Uh, yeah, wonderful page. And then we'll also post a couple of other images from the the war sequences that you've mentioned as well. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah. And I will post all these as ever on the socials when the episode comes out. Just fantastic, fantastic. stuff. That's brilliant. It's, it's, it's been excellent. I've really enjoyed revisiting. See, for, for all the same that the story is very much a, 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 of its time, and I think you know John and Alan were just sort of go. I think it's exactly they possibly got a little bit like, yeah, we need to wrap this up now <laughs> with it. But yeah, it, it's great fun getting there. So, and I say, there's, there's not a page in it that you won't look at and find something to think, wow, that's an amazing piece of artwork. Yes, that he was just doing this every week, as you say doing it as a job but you're just producing such stunners on each panel astonishing now sadly as we've said the problem with hibernia press is you've got to get them while they're there because they sell out and i think this one is sold out it was obviously the this is the the reprint version i've got the reprint of the original shout out to david mcdonald and as you say to richard pierce for the wonderful work that they did on reproducing it, binding it, and, and it that they continue, to, and that they continue to do. To be honest with you, because they they, they 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 do so much good work. Just yeah. you know, sort of unearthing these these little gems and and bringing them back to to either a new audience or or those of us who perhaps couldn't lay their hands on their their eagles because they're mouldering in a box in the attic somewhere. Yeah. and it's a it's just a pleasure to see them again, especially in such handsome volumes. Absolutely, and you know you've got to follow Hibernia Press on Twitter or wherever. Keep an eye on their page because you'll, you know, when they announce their new releases, you need to get on them fairly quick, don't you? Absolutely, and I mean, and you know, don't give up hope. I and mean, they do bring things back into print, sort of the short, limited print runs. So they they may they may come round to the idea of doing a very quick sort of, you know, a very short run of, of bringing Damon back into print. But yeah, as you say, you need to be really on the ball and get right in, get right in there as soon as they announce something like that. Fantastic, Jim. Now, of course, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was that you were help, helpful in identifying the uncredited letterers for this volume. And I'm fascinated that you can look at hand lettering and recognise the hand of some of these sort of well-known letterers from British comics in the 80s. 
It's um, I, I can't I can't really explain it. It's it's I mean it is. I'd say some some of them are easier than others, um, and they are, they're very obvious cues. So I mean, Steve Potter is very easy to spot. He had tends to which the opening spread is Steve Potter. Um, he had a, a a really lovely sort of slightly rounded style of, of doing his lettering. His, his characters are quite slightly rounded, um, and he tended to favour really quite a round balloon with these big fat tails. You know, Tom Brady was spot a mile off because he was the governor. Tony Jacob is very easy to spot because he basically used to do sort of rectangular balloons with rounded corners. Right. Pete Knight and John Aldridge had very similar styles of the way they rendered the characters, but John Aldridge favoured a rounder balloon, whereas Pete Knight would tend to have one more like Tom Frey with more or less a straight line ruled top and bottom and then sort of curved outside vertical edges. You imagine if they were a rectangle if the top and bottom lines are just straight. That he curved the, uh, the then so these sort of little cues you can take, but it's complicated by the fact you know, that there would be staff people on staff sort of trying to imitate their styles for last minute bodging and, um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and say, and people that I mean, I, it's 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 easy for me to identify them because obviously, I, for the most part, I'd seen most of these guys in 2000 AD, so I knew what their names were, right? Um, but you know, but you, you'll get people like say, I mean, I the only reason I, I ever sort of with any chance of identifying the Paul Bensberg's work in some of these books is because he never left for 2000 AD. He'd do a bunch of stuff for battle and latterly battle brought credits in and then I was able to go, ah, right, okay, I can see that now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, and it's, it's, it's just part of my, my, my sort of nerdy little, and my nerdy little, uh, little obsessions. It's, but I, I've sort of been very, very um, fascinated with the nuts and bolts of comics from a very early age. Um, the actual process of doing it once at, at quite a sort of young age i realized that there were actual human beings doing this and it was a thing that i would quite like to do i became very interested in, in understanding the process and examining the different bits that go into making a comic and right. so yeah that's just how I, I i ended up sort of because i so it was a rather a, a sort of a, an introverted child i didn't you know spend a lot of time out and playing in the park and stuff because so i'd spend a lot of time poring over these comics trying to work work out how how the things ticked, if you if you imagine, um, yes. rather than just enjoying them as stories, I'd read them, I'd enjoy as a story, and I'd stop and I'd go back and I'd try and work out what made this panel look better than that panel, why I like this letterer better than I like that letterer. Um, you know, and here I am. Here you are, lettering. Thirty years later, 30, 40, 40, 40 years later, working in comics. So it it it's, it's it wasn't a, it wasn't wasn't a waste of my childhood, but it was it was a bit a bit of a specialist interest, if you to be honest about it. And do you, I mean, does that extend to like the modern day letterers? Can you look at an issue of 2000 AD without looking at the credit box and spot who the letterer is each time? Yes. I mean, even, I mean, it's, in some cases it's quite easy because obviously Annie has a, a font derived from her own previous hand lettering. So Annie's lettering will always look like Annie's lettering. But, um, you know, but both Simon and I will, I mean, Simon has a, a, a couple of fonts he favours. I have a couple that I favour. But both Simon and I will quite happily change to something different if the needs or the mood of the story suggests that it would be, it would be benefited from being left in a different style from what we tend to use as you know, in inverted commas at default. But I mean, I, I can usually spot Simon's lettering regardless of, of what of what font he's chosen to use as the main dialogue font, because I, just as the way that he, he places his balloons, because he has these very very sharp and incredibly precise needle-like pointers that go to, you know come from the balloons to the characters. That's very distinctively Simon. Um, so yeah, I'm afraid I can. 
Right. I'm just fascinated that you, you can look at the hand immediately and spot them. Um, it's insider knowledge, obviously, gained over a lot of years of experience of doing it yourself. Well, yeah, once you, once you sort, of, sort of see behind the curtain and you understand the, the practical techniques, you kind of, even if you don't know how somebody else is doing it, you can spot that it's being done, if you see what I mean. And you yeah. go, ah, right, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I bet good money that's Simon Boland in the same way that I can, I can say there's lots of my colleagues in the States. I can, I can tell that Taylor Esposito has lettered a particular book and I can tell that Matt Cross has lettered a particular book. And I mean, you know, some, sometimes it's because of it's like a, like a, a Adichavidika uh, is just a phenomenal letter. You know, like I can see his work a mile off, even even though very few of his jobs look like other ones of his jobs. There's just a, a level of attention to detail and creativity you bring to it. If you look at a book and you think, wow, I, I would never have thought of doing that, but it works really well. It's usually him, the swine. Right. <laughs> and if we turn to guest projects, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you can tell us about, Jim? <sighs> I'm not sure I'm surprised. Supposed to say, actually, no. I must be allowed to say it because they they definitely they asked me to do get to finalise three or five pages to go out for a preview. I'm quite excited that I'm going to be working on a book for Boone that uh, oh, right. is, I believe, Charlie Aglard's first post Walking Dead multi page multi episode sequential thing. It's a, a mini series of Cy Spurrier oh, uh, writing right, yes. that I'll be lettering uh, called Damn Them All. Sort of from what I what I what I've seen of it so far, sort of seems seems to be kind of equal equal parts sort of East End gangster and equal parts supernatural mystery. Right. Although by the end of the, the first episode, it's, it's taken a turn that I certainly didn't see coming. I've, I've only seen the first episode so far, but uh, I'm not sure it's got a release date. But I'm I'm really quite excited about that. And with, with the proviso, like I say, that I, I as I always say, tediously, but I do genuinely enjoy working on all the projects I'm doing. So. Uh, they're, they're all great, and I can't, you know, bore you listing them all. There's that many of them, but we'll, as always, say if you see my name on a book, you can be fairly sure that I enjoyed working on it, and it's probably worth a look. Great stuff. And you do have a blog, or uh, I'm not sure if it's terribly recent, but you have a blog it's, about it, lettering. It, it is. There are some tutorials on that, though. I would say they're a little bit out of date. You might be as well going off find Nate Peacock's from Blambot's book on lettering if you're desperate to know how to do it physically. Um, now that I've more or less come off Twitter, I am of a mind to go back and start contributing some more to the blog. Although I'm not sure how I'm going to promote it now. I'm not on Twitter to tell people that I've done it. Right. I have to do it, I have to do it through Instagram, which I, I'm, I'm still still floating about on. So. Uh, okay. So I will put the link to your blog in the show notes for this episode and also to Nate uh, Picos's book as well. Fantastic stuff, Jim. And as ever, if you can track down a copy of Hosey Ortiz... The House of Demon from the wonderful Hibernia Press, then do try and get a copy because it's a stunner, really, isn't it? It's just so beautifully it presented. It absolutely is. I mean, the book itself is really well designed. The repro is gorgeous, and then the content is just, it's, it's absolutely worth a read. Yeah. Terrific stuff. Thank you so much, Jim, for giving up your time this Sunday morning to talk about uh, New Eagle comic, House of Demon, and Jose Ortiz. It's been an absolute pleasure, Eamon. Thank you very much for having me back on. No trouble at all, and I hope I see you in the bar at uh, Lawless in Bristol next year. That's very much my plan. And mine too, yes. 
And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. As ever, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and the 2000 E forums. Go to the website megacitybookclub.com to find all the links, including links to Jim's work. Uh, or email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, as Jim did, if you have a book that you're interested in discussing on the pod. And that'll do us. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me. Bye.